we're going to be in John chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 43 through 54. Um, as you're turning there, um, let, me, let me simply say this. Uh, as we dive into this passage of Scripture, as, as I was doing a lot of study this week, I found out that a lot of preachers will actually skip over this section of John um, because uh, at first glance, there doesn't seem to be a... Uh, it's pretty basic. There doesn't seem on the surface to be a whole lot that you can really glean from this story. Um, but I, in fact, I've been really blessed by my study of this passage. I was especially ministered to by a couple of uh, messages from... Uh, Bethlehem Church and a Redeemer Presbyterian Church, as well as a book. I meant to bring it for you guys, but it's a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. We've talked about it a little bit here before. Um, if there's something that we talk about today that maybe raises some questions in your mind or maybe just kind of piques your curiosity and you want some more re- resources, I'd love to be able to pass those along to you, especially that book. I'd love to be able to put that in your hands. If there's something that, you know, some questions you might have, um, let, let that be my gift to you. Uh, let me know, and I'll get, I'll get you a copy this week, okay? Uh, but those resources, those, those sermons in that book really help to shape um, what we're going to be saying today. Uh, so let's, let's dive into this. John 4, 43 through 54. Okay. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, speak through your word. I pray, God, for your, again, your spirit to be um, not just present, but present and active. I pray, God, that regardless of where we are on our journey today, God, that your word would, would sharpen us uh, and would build us up, would uh, refine us, would, would, would uh, purify and cut away any things, Lord, that's not pleasing to you. I just pray, God, for your blessing on us this morning. Speak, Lord. Help us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, this is our 15th week now in our study through John. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's important that we continually keep coming back. You know, we're 15 weeks in this now. We have to keep coming back to the original uh, purpose for John's book. We talked about that week one, remember? Why did John write this book in the first place? And it's easy for us to know the theme of the book uh, because John actually tells us. There's no guessing involved. John actually tells us why he wrote the book at the end of the book. This is what he says in John 20, verse 30 and 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, these signs, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay? John's saying, I handpicked these specific events in Jesus' life for the purpose of helping you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that as you believe in him, that you might find eternal life. 
Okay? I, I wrote these so that you might believe and have life. That, those are the two main themes of John's gospel. You're going to see it over and over and over. Belief, eternal life. Faith and eternal life. Um, what we've been looking at the last few weeks is we've looked at a couple of conversations that Jesus had with one with an insider, one with an outsider. And there was a whole lot of talk about eternal life. Okay, he talked about what it meant to be born again. He talked about the spring that would well up into eternal life. He talked about um, never being thirsty again, about uh, always being satisfied in Christ. There's been a whole lot of talk about eternal life. But today we move to a discussion about the belief that leads to eternal life. Today we're going to be talking about faith. That's what this passage is all about. It's about faith. Faith is kind of a nebulous idea, um, and it's, it's a word that's often misused. It's a word, word that's often misunderstood. So what I'd like to do today, very, very briefly, hopefully, is uh, point out three very simple um, but very significant truths that this passage has to tell us about, about faith. So number one, faith begins with reason, begins with thinking. Faith begins with thinking. Uh, this is contrary to what, what a lot of us are told. Faith, we're told, is opposed to reason. But I'm here to tell you, that again, that that's not true. Faith is not opposed to reason. Uh, in, in verse 46, we're told that a guy comes from Capernaum to Cana, right? And we're told that the guy isn't just any random guy. He's actually a royal official. The word that's actually used is basilico, which means that he was either a ruler over a small area or at the very least, he was a, a guy of high standing in the royal court of King Herod. Either way, this guy's kind of a big deal. Okay? He's a royal official. We also know that Capernaum to Cana, uh, where this guy lives to where Jesus is, is at least 20 miles, 20 to 25 miles away. So think for a second. Why, why would a, a, a man of high position like that leave the bedside of his dying child and travel on foot 20 or 25 miles to go see an illiterate village carpenter from Nazareth. What reason would he have to do that? Verse 45 tells us the answer. It says that word was beginning to spread about Jesus' power. The officials, that, that royal official had heard testimonies, had heard stories about who Jesus was and his power and the deeds that he had accomplished in Jerusalem uh, months prior. So he'd heard these stories, he weighed the reports, he thought about them, he considered them, and then he, he, he determined that it was going to be worth his time to go and see this carpenter, this, this miracle worker. Okay? He didn't go for no reason. You follow me? He didn't leave for no reason. He had reason to believe that Jesus could help. Faith always begins with reason. Faith always begins with thinking. I've heard it illustrated like this, that... Um, Say, let's say you go to the doctor, and the doctor tells you, you need to go for your checkup. And the doctor says, man, you need surgery. You, you need surgery. Um, and so the question that goes to your mind is, do, it. Am I, do I do this? Do, do, I, do I place my faith in this doctor? Do I place my faith in this procedure? So what you do is, if you're smart, what you do is you begin to ask some questions. You start to do some investigating. You'll, you'll get a second opinion, second opinion. You'll talk to other people who have had that same surgery. You'll get the diagnosis. Uh, you're going to look at the side effects. You'll try to determine what will happen to you if you don't get that surgery. Right? You'll ask a whole lot of questions. In order to get enough faith in that doctor and in that procedure, you must investigate. Nobody in their right mind would have a doctor say, uh, you need surgery out of nowhere. You need surgery. And then just blindly say, all right, let's do it. Cut me open. 
I don't want to know anything else about it. I don't want to know why I need it. I don't, I don't want to know what the side effects are going to be. I don't want to know what the cost is going to be. Um, let's just do it. Let's go. Cut me open. Nobody in their right mind would do that. Faith always begins with investigation, with, with research. Now, can you prove 100% without a shadow of doubt beforehand, before that surgery, that that's the right choice for you to make, that it's the right decision? No. You cannot. At some point after your research, after your investigation, you're going to need to take a step of faith, aren't you? Let's be honest. Can we prove 100% without a shadow of a doubt that there is a God and that that God is the God of the Bible? Somebody can say it. No. No, we cannot prove that. And so what a lot of people will say is, you can't prove it, uh, then I don't want anything to do with it. You, you can't prove to me that there's a God, therefore I, I'm, I'm not going to, to buy in. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to take that step. But what I want to say, and this is what, I don't have time to go into this, but what I, what, what I want to simply say is there is virtually no area of your life, no major area of your life where you can have complete, absolute proof. We don't have time to go into philosophy 101 about what's provable or not, okay? Um, but, but there is virtually no major area of your life where you can have absolute proof. And maybe you disagree with me, and that's okay, and you can come and you can talk to me about that after the service. We can talk more in detail about that. But there is no major area of your life where you, can, where you demand absolute proof. I'll even give you one example, okay? Marriage. I, I, I've heard this example before. Marriage. It takes a step of faith to marry somebody, doesn't it? For some of us, a big step of faith. Uh, you can never be totally 100% sure that that person that you are deciding to marry uh, is, is the right choice, right? You can spend a whole lot of time with that person. You can get as much information about that person as, as you can. You can ask a whole lot of questions. You can Google her. You can uh, log into her Facebook account. Or you can check her references, talk to her friends. You can do all the research you possibly can, but there's ne- at some point, you're going to have to take a step of faith. You cannot prove that this is the right choice to make, that this is the right step to take. Every major decision of your life at some point will take a step of faith, won't it? But this does not mean. Um, we take that idea, and then, we, then we, what we equate that with is we're saying that you should take some blind leap. And that's not Christianity. You're not asked to take a blind leap. To place your faith in someone or something begins with learning and acquiring information and thinking and researching. Why, why, do I, why am I taking our time to mention this? Um, because there, some people believe that Christianity demands that you check your mind at the door. And that's, again, that's just frankly not true. Perhaps you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. What I'm not calling you today to do is take a blind leap forward. But what I am asking you to do what I am inviting you in to do is an honest, open-minded investigation into the claims of Christianity. Enter into an honest, open-minded investigation into the claims of Christianity. And I'll, we'll even go a step further and say that there are people in this room who would love to, be walk, to walk alongside, with, alongside you in that journey. Um, you're not being asked to turn off your brain when you become a Christian. But I will say one more thing about this. Um, perhaps there may be Christians here in this room who have bought into that false idea that you do have to check your brain at the door. You do have to turn off your mind. And frankly, you have no idea whether or not Christianity is true. You like Christianity. 
It makes you feel good. It helps you sleep at night. But when it comes down to it, you don't know if it's actually true or not. May I, may I just give one brief forewarning based out of love? Um, there will come a time when your faith will be tested. We say this all the time, but we are one phone call away from our life being flipped upside down. Bad things do happen. And, and you may get to a point where you begin to question whether or not these things are true. Do you have a foundation? Do you have a foundation? Take time to investigate the claims of the scriptures. And again, I'll just say the same thing. If perhaps you, you really don't know if it's true or not. You like it, but you don't know if it's true or not. There are people in this room who can walk alongside you and help you to determine, help you to realize why faith in Christ is reasonable. Okay? For this official in John chapter 4, his journey began with thinking. He came to Jesus because he has reason to believe that it was going to be worth his time. Can he prove that Jesus is going to come through for him? No. No, but he'd heard the stories, he'd heard the testimonies, he, he, he thought it through, he reasoned through it, and he decided it was going to be worth his time. He, this royal official was going to be staking his reputation, leaving his dying son's bedtime, perhaps even missing his son's last breaths, because he thought it was reasonable for him to come and see Jesus. So next, this man is going to move from beyond reason to trust, and that's my second point. True, life-giving faith, life-giving faith moves from intellectual belief to trust. Um, the reformers uh, nailed the essence of faith, and they, they said there are three parts to faith. They said there's knowledge, there's acceptance, and then there's trust. And we could actually even break that down into two parts, make it even simpler. You, uh, faith means that you learn the truth, and then you act on the truth. That's what faith is. You learn the truth, and then you act on truth. Again, if we go back to our surgery illustration uh, it's one thing to simply um, believe. It's one thing to simply believe that the doctor and the procedure are the right choice to take, right choice to make. Okay, this doctor, this procedure, this is the right choice for me to make. Okay, but that's not going to make you any better. That's not going to heal you. Just knowing it here and saying it with your mouth, I know this is the right choice, isn't going to heal you. What do you have to do? You have to entrust yourself to the doctor. You have to actually go under the knife. You have to actually commit yourself. Faith goes beyond thinking to commitment. Um, this official had heard the stories about Jesus, accepted them, and now Jesus was going to call him to a place of trust. And this is how he does it. The man comes up to Jesus, asks Jesus to heal his dying son. He says, Jesus, will you heal my boy? Actually, what he says, if you look at the Greek, it's, it's this very affectionate uh, term for his son. He actually says, Jesus, will you heal my little darling baby boy? That's what he says comes to Jesus and begs him, Jesus, would you heal my darling son? What does Jesus say? He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Okay. Ouch, right? Isn't that, doesn't that, yeah, doesn't that, does that not, and this is the guy who's begging for his darling, dear little baby boy. And then Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Isn't, isn't that a little bit insensitive? This man is begging Jesus to heal his baby boy, and Jesus responds by rebuking him and rebuking the rest of the crowd with him. But if you read through the Gospels, Jesus does this a lot, doesn't he? Um, people will come to Jesus with these reasonable, often uh, heart-wrenching requests for his help, and Jesus will, will come back 
at them in a way that's at first like a little abrasive, almost a little offensive. Um, does he do it because he doesn't care? Is Jesus' heart cold? No, it's precisely because he does care. He's trying to shake them out of their own little petty agendas. Jesus, Jesus did this very same thing with the woman at the well, didn't he? Remember the woman said, sure, I'll take that water that you're offering. And then what does Jesus do? He brings up her ex-husbands. Seeming out of like, what, 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 why are we talking about my ex-husbands here? Jesus wanted her to see that he was not simply interested in quenching her physical thirst, but her spiritual thirst. Jesus is going to continually draw people away from their short-sighted agendas and bring them into his higher agenda. He's not simply interested in healing this man's son physically. He's interested in healing the whole family spiritually. He's not interested in a temporary life, but an eternal life. Um, so Jesus rebukes this guy's motivations a bit, and he gives him an answer that he probably doesn't understand, definitely doesn't like very much. Um, and I love the way that this guy responds, though, because he doesn't respond. Uh, he, does, he doesn't run away, right? He doesn't get offended and push back. He doesn't, he doesn't get argumentative. But what he does do is he persists. This, this man persists, and, and he he persists with reverence and with humility. By the way, um, Jesus is going to give us answers that we don't like. And he's going to give us answers that we don't uh, understand, right? He does that a lot. We've seen it in the Bible. We've seen it in, through experience. How, how do we handle that? Um, I just had a conversation with a, a good buddy of mine who got to a point where he was, I mean, he was serving God and, and, and uh, actually in, in ministry and got to the point where he uh, he kind of felt like God closed the door on him. And he's upset. He's really, really upset. And pretty much, and I'll, I'll, I'll tame the language, uh, but he's pretty much said, forget you, God. I'm done. I tried it your way. Didn't work. Didn't, didn't work out like I thought it was going to. You didn't answer me in the way that I think you need to answer me. So I'm done. I'll do it my way. Those are literally his words. He told me over lunch the other day. Um, he, didn't, he doesn't understand what God is doing. He doesn't like what God is doing. And so what he says is, well, then forget you. I'll go my own way. So we had a very, we had a very uh, frank conversation that day. And so we were talking. I said, so you weren't, you weren't serving God because he's God. Then you were serving God for your sake, essentially. You got into Christianity for God to serve you, not for you to serve God. Um, we, we, have, we have a great example of what, what it looks like for, for somebody to not get the answer that they want to hear, um, or that they understand, and, 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 and the best step to take. This is what he does. He persists, but he persists with reverence, and he persists with humility. This is what he says. I love this. He says, sir, starts with that, sir, I'm begging you, please come with me and help my little boy. Please come. Sir, I'm begging you, please come and help my little boy. And Jesus says, go. He says, go, your son will live. And at first glance, you're like, yes, happy ending, all is well, this is so great. Uh, you know, th this man is now walking away, just skipping, lighthearted, you know, peace in his heart and joy, and he's just going to go home and see his little boy. Uh, don't jump to that conclusion too quickly. You have to see that this is yet another test that Jesus is giving this man. In fact, what, the, what Jesus just did by saying, go, your son will live, this is the ultimate test that Jesus is giving this man. 
Um, we may not see that because we know the power of Jesus. Uh, we know what Jesus is capable. But for this guy, stay with the context. With this guy, his only context for magicians and miracle workers and prophets and so on did not allow for this scenario to be possible. Everything that this guy knew about miracle workers and prophets uh, did not allow for this. The, the miracle worker actually had to physically be there. That's why the man's saying, Jesus, come with me. That's, a, that's really important. He's saying, please, come with me. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not going with you. I'm not going to go with you. I can heal your son with my very word. It doesn't matter about if he's 25 miles away. I can heal my son with the word. Nobody had ever made that claim. All these Old Testament, you go look, all those Old Testament prophets did these amazing, miraculous things. They had to be there physically. They had to put their hand on them. They had to use their staff. They were there physically. They had to call things down, call on the authority of someone else. Jesus is saying, my very word has authority. I speak and it's done. Distance means nothing to me. Nobody had ever made that claim. Nobody ever had the power where they could heal from a simple word from 25 miles away. Jesus is claiming God-like power. He's telling this man, I'm not who you think I am. I am not some conjurer of magic tricks, okay? I'm not Gandalf the White, all right? I'm not, um, I'm not just some little magician. He, the, the Greek actually says, uh, he says, go, your son lives. Go, your son lives. He's saying at that very moment, present tense, at that very moment, at the word of Jesus, the boy's physiology has changed and the boy is now well. Go, your son lives. See the radical claims that Jesus has just made to that man. Unprecedented. The radical claims that he has made to that man. And, and, and consider the choice that this man now has. This man has a choice. He can, he can believe uh, Jesus and, and walk back. Or he can stay and he can continue begging. Not trusting Jesus to be who he says he is. In his mind... He thinks, if I can bring back this great miracle worker, I've heard all these stories about him. If I can just bring him back, if I can just convince him, if I bring him back with me and he puts his hand on my son, chances are my son's going to be healed. This man also probably knows this is his last chance. Again, this is a desperate attempt for this royal official. He's probably thinking, if, if Jesus is wrong and this, my son is not healed and I get home, my son's probably going to die. This is probably my last chance. The man has a choice. And by the way, Jesus could have made the trip to Capernaum, couldn't he? How many other times when, when Jesus is asked, hey, will you come over with me and do this? How many times does Jesus say yes? And he actually goes. Why did he say no this time? I believe, I believe it is because this man needed a definitive opportunity to trust Jesus for who he claimed to be. And the question is, will he trust him? And the answer is yes. Verse 50 tells us that the man took Jesus at his word and departed. He believed Jesus took him at his word, and he left. The man made the choice to simply not believe stuff about Jesus, but to actually believe in Jesus. The difference between life-giving faith is, uh, 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 the difference between life-giving faith and mere intellectual assent is actually entrusting yourself to God. Um, there's an old sermon illustration that I actually heard as I, I listened to six or eight different sermons uh, to prepare for the sermon, and Multiple times, multiple preachers, I heard them use the same illustration. And if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. So I'm going to use it too. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. The story is about, you probably heard this. I've heard this before. The story is about a guy named Charles Blondin. Okay, and he's a French tightrope walker from the 19th century. 
Okay, you might be familiar with this story. But this guy was, uh, he was especially famous for uh, walking over the Niagara Falls. He actually walked over several different times. And he was known for always kind of changing up his act and always spicing things up. Okay, so there, he'd do different things as he'd walk over. He, was known, he would walk over uh, blindfolded. Okay, walk across tightrope blindfolded. There was one time he put his manager on his back and walked across. All right. The manager, by the way, said you know, that he, was, he acted totally calm, but he was like, it was like a nightmare. He said, uh, you can imagine. Uh, there was one time, I, I looked at this. I snopesed this, all right? Forgive me if it's a total, I don't understand how this happens, but this is, this, I couldn't find that it wasn't true. I just found several reports that it was. Um, I don't know how he would have done this, but he actually walked across one time, got, sat down midway on the tightrope, cooked an omelet, and ate the omelet. I don't, I don't know how it works, but that's, that's the story. All right, there was one time where he took a chair, and he walked across midway, and he put the chair down on the tightrope and stood on it, stood on the chair. He didn't put down two legs of the chair. He put one leg of the chair on the tightrope and stood on it. Okay? He was so good. So, I mean, absolutely uh, a genius. I mean, absolutely incredible at this. They actually, for a while, called the tightrope walking his last name, Blown, I can't pronounce his last name, I can't speak French, Blondaining, whatever. They actually named it after him for a while. He was so good. Um, there was this one time, this is how the story goes. There was this one time where he uh, took a wheelbarrow and he filled it full of weight, a couple hundred pounds of weight. He takes the wheelbarrow and he wheels it out onto this tightrope and walks across this tightrope with the wheelbarrow full of this weight. And everybody's cheering and everybody just I can't believe that what this guy is, is capable of, what he's doing. He comes back to the crowd after you know, accomplishing this incredible feat, and he asks the crowd, and he says, everybody see me? Everybody just see that? Everybody's cheering? Everybody's, this is great. And he said, now who thinks I can do it with a human being? Who, who thinks I can put a human being in this, in this wheelbarrow and, and wheel him across? And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we believe you can do it, whatever. And, and so he's like, you really believe in me? You believe I can do it? Ah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And he said, okay, who's it going to be? Who's going to jump in? Crickets, right? Silence. Do you think that, do you think that people actually believed that he could do it? I, I, think, I think they did. I think it's possible that they could have been absolutely convinced that this, I mean, this, this guy was, I mean, unbelievable in the stuff that he had accomplished. They had just watched him do it. They had eyewitness evidence that he had just walked across with 200 pounds in the wheelbarrow. I think they were absolutely convinced that this guy was legit and that he could do it. But there's a difference between absolutely being convinced that he could and actually entrusting your life to it. Is it possible to be absolutely convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and yet not entrust your life to him? Is there anybody here who would be honest and say, I know that Christianity is true? I sing about it every week with you guys with absolute sincerity. We sing, I believe these things about Jesus. I'm absolutely convinced that Christianity is true, and yet I live as if he doesn't exist. That's what Craig Groeschel calls um, uh, the Christian atheist. We believe he exists with all, of our, with all of our mind, and yet we live as if he doesn't exist. Jesus is pushing this man to move beyond mere rational belief to actual trust. Jesus is telling the man, get in the wheelbarrow. Um, 
can I just say one more thing on that before we move to our, our third point? Conjuring up that kind of faith to get in a wheelbarrow it, uh, seems a little daunting, doesn't it? Um, we think, I don't know if I have what it takes, frankly. I don't think I have what it takes to, to step into that wheelbarrow. Um, I love the way Keller simplifies this really, really well. He, he says, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. Um, when this official turned around and began walking away from Jesus, when, when, he, when he turned around, when he took Jesus at his word and departed, like the scripture says, do you think that he was skipping home lighthearted with peace in his heart? Probably not. Probably not. I believe uh, that he, it was probably one of the longest walks he'd ever taken. He was probably walking home with doubts and fears in his head and tears in his eyes and a big pit in his stomach because he doesn't know. He, I don't think he was actually totally convinced. You know why? Because when the servant comes out and says, your son was well, he actually says, what time, what time did he get well? If he was absolutely convinced, if he was just, I claim this miracle in the name of Jesus. I, I name it and I claim it. Right? If he was absolutely walking with just this absolute, complete confidence, when the servant came in and said, your, your son is well, he said, of course he's well. Of course he's well. Jesus said he would be well. I already knew that. No, but he didn't. He said, what time did that happen? And the, and the man tells him, and he realized it's the exact same moment that Jesus spoke. I don't think this man was walking home with all that much confidence. Right? I think he was walking home with lots of doubts and fears in his head, tears in his eyes, and a pit in his stomach. Um, but I want you to see that it's that faith, it's this man's faith, full of, plagued with doubts, plagued with fears, that's going to lead this man to eternal life. Isn't that so comforting? For, for a man like me who is absolutely, just for the last 31 years, I've been, I've been so plagued with seasons of doubt, seasons of questions. That's so encouraging to me that this man's weak and fragile faith is able to lead him into eternal life. It's not the strength or the quality of your faith that you can muster up that's going to save you. It's the strength of the object of your faith. And by the way, what was the object of his faith? Jesus. It was not the strength of the man's faith that healed his son. It was the power of Jesus. His son wasn't healed by this man's faith. It was the power of Christ. I've heard it illustrated like this. Uh, think about the stool I'm sitting on. Okay? Uh, imagine the stool is really weak and flimsy. Okay, it's, it's weak, it's, it's, it's got, you know, broken leg or whatever. But I come at this stool, I approach this stool with just this unbelievable faith. I'm just like, you know what, I believe in that stool. I'm just so confident and sure that that stool is going to hold me up. I have no doubt in my mind, whatever, that that stool is going to hold me up. When you take the weakness of that stool and my girth, and you put those two factors together, and I sit down on that stool, what's probably going to happen? It's going to break. But then flip the scenario. Let's say that the stool here is, is incredibly strong. It's, it's, it's durable, whatever. It's resilient. But I come at this stool with just this trepidation and this fear, and I, I've just fallen one too many times on these stools. And so I'm just like, I just don't, I don't know if that stool is going to hold me. Frankly, I have no idea if this is, is going to work out. I'm just so afraid. I'm so fearful. And finally, finally, I muster up the, uh, the uh, uh, courage to finally sit down. And guess what? I'm fine. The stool was strong enough. Think about this for a second. Please stay with me. 
whether I am supported or whether I fall down does not depend on the strength of my faith in the stool. It depends on the strength of the stool. It does not depend on the strength of my faith. It depends on the strength of the object of my faith. I might be filled with fears. I might be filled with doubts. But how much, listen, how much faith do I need for this stool to hold me up? How much faith do I need to conjure up? Just enough to sit down. Just enough to sit down. How much faith did this man need to get eternal life, to, to be led into eternal life? Just enough to walk away. Just enough to trust and obey Jesus. He was probably filled with all kinds of fears, all kinds of doubts, all kinds of questions, um, like me, and maybe like you. So think about how comforting this is. You are not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. One more thing I want to address today, my last point. True, eternal life producing faith starts with reason, starts with thinking, it moves to trust, and it grows, most often, through suffering and trials. It grows most often through suffering and through trials. This is hard for us to accept, but the setting in which this man is able to to develop faith in Jesus is a setting of suffering. The reason this man was willing to walk toward Jesus that day from Capernaum to Cana and believe in him is because there has been tremendous suffering that has entered into this man's life. It's trials that most often open our eyes to our need for Jesus, isn't it? We know that from the scriptures and we know that from experience. Let me read you a passage um, that I read this week that helps to explain why this is. Until you suffer... You can really believe you're a person who is self-sufficient and self-reliant, and that's a lie. You must see that your life is fragile. Suffering means you're supposed to take your nest, the nest of your heart, and build it in no tree because every tree is coming down. You have to build it on the rock. Suffering is like a furnace, painful, searing heat that creates purity and beauty. Suffering puts its finger on good things that have become too important to us. We must respond to suffering not by jettisoning or getting rid of those loved things, but by turning to God and loving him more and by putting our roots down deeper into him. There's this old hymn by John Newton that expresses this really well. This is what he wrote. He said, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us uh, in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. He whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's true, isn't it? It's hard to accept this, though, that, that Jesus, why, it's hard to accept that Jesus would allow this man to walk home by himself, full of doubts, full of, ear, full of fears. I wish it didn't take this type of pain and this type of, type of agony for God to be able to penetrate our hearts and move us to these defining moments of commitment, but more often than not, it does, doesn't it? 
One of our favorite Narnian illustrations that we, we remember here uh, is when the Pevensies first uh, hear about Aslan in the, in the beaver's home. Right? They first learned that Aslan, the king, he's a lion. And, and the, the Pevensie says, a lion? Aslan? And they, say, and they ask the beavers, they say, is he tame? Is he safe? And what do the beavers say? The beavers just laugh at them. Safe? Who said anything about safe, they said? No, he's a lion. He's not tame. He is not safe, but he is good, and he is the king. He is good, and he is the king. God is not predictable. He is not controllable. He is not a tame lion, but he is good. He knows when you need a hug. He knows when you need a good smack, right? He knows when he should, he knows when he should walk home with you holding your hand along the way, and he knows when you need to take a long walk by yourself wrestling through your doubts and your fears, that big pit in your stomach. Do not try to tame him. It's been said that if God was small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. Right? If God was small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. Um, I've also heard it said that if God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew all that God knows. Isn't that true? God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew all that he knows. Jesus knew that this was the way, saying, go, I'm not going with you, you go, your son lives, trust me. Jesus knew that this was the way that was not only going to heal the boy physically, but was also going to move that man to make a decision to trust Jesus completely for who he claimed to be that was going to bring spiritual life to his family. He knows what we need. It's often painful. He is not safe. He is not tame. But we must remember that he is good, and he is the king. John Newton said this, um, Though dark be my way, since he is my guide, tis mine to obey, tis his to provide. By prayer, let me wrestle, and he will perform. I love this. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Um, in, in, our, in our men's group on Fridays, we just finished reading through the book of Job. And so the idea of the topic of pain and suffering has been on my uh, mind and heart lately. Um, one of the guys on Friday actually asked the rest of us, he said, can you think of one major character in the, in the Bible uh, that, that didn't suffer? Can you think of one character in the Bible that didn't go through some kind of suffering? And honestly, we couldn't think of one person. Not, not one solitary person didn't go through something. Um, the Bible has a whole lot of examples and a whole lot to say about the growth of faith through trials. I want to read you just a couple of key verses here. James 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Um, by the way, I think James, if I'm not mistaken, I think James, the, one, the guy who wrote that, was the first one to die for his faith. He said, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. Um, out of disciples, that is. First one to die. First Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And again, the, the guy who wrote that, that's Paul, right? We remember Paul's story. 
he's saying this, this light momentary affliction is nothing in comparison to what we're going to experience. Nothing in comparison to what he's, what he's building into us. Uh, this, is, this is Paul who was blind for a season, who, who was, you know, ran out of cities multiple times, who was beaten, who was stoned and left for dead multiple times. Can you imagine being stoned, you know, big, these, these big boulders thrown at you, and people actually think that you are dead, and they walk away, and he gets up and, and moves on. He was shipwrecked multiple times. He would spend the nights in the open ocean. He was washed ashore onto the island. Just when he gets there, they, they start a fire to warm themselves up, and then he gets bit by a snake, okay? This guy can't catch a break, Light, momentary afflictions is what he says in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who, was tempted, who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That one is so encouraging to me. I love that verse. Because the Bible clearly says this suffering, these trials, it develops faith, they develop perseverance, they develop hope, they develop character, and so on, right? But it, what, what this passage is saying is that God does not sit idly by while we suffer. While we endure today, he is not sitting idly by. He sympathizes, he cares, there is grace, there is strength available today to help you endure. I love that. I recently read a book with my son. We're just going to stick with the Narnian theme here. The, the book called Magi- The Magician's Nephew. It's the first in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And the book is about the creation of Narnia. It's really beautiful, actually, how Aslan creates Narnia. Um, the, the book is about a, a young boy named Diggory and a, and a little girl named Polly. And Diggory and Polly inadvertently bring this evil queen into Narnia on, like, its first day, its first day of existence. Okay, um, all throughout the story, though, Diggory's, as he's going on these adventures in these other little worlds, his mom is here in our world, very, very sick, and she's terminally ill. So all throughout the story, Diggory can't stop thinking about his mom. He, he, all he can think about is, how can I help my mom? What can I do to help bring healing to my mom? I don't want to lose her. So as he's in, in going through all these great adventures, he can't stop thinking about his mother. Um, so... At one point through the story, Diggory is asked by Aslan to go on this mission. He want, Aslan asks Diggory to go on this mission to bring beauty and healing into the land of Narnia. Um, and I want to read you just a, a short section here. Son of Adam, that's, he's talking to Diggory. Son of Adam, said Aslan, are you ready to undo the wrong that you have done to my sweet country of Narnia on the very day of its birth? Well, I don't see what I can do, said Diggory. I asked, are you ready, said the lion. Yes, said Diggory. He had had for a second some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you'll promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could try to make bargains with. But when he had said yes, he thought of his mother, and he thought of the great hopes he had had, and how they were all dying away, and a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes. And he blurted out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. You want, you want to know something interesting? Um, Diggory's last name in the book 
is kirk. Um, that's, that's where we get our word church from. It's a Germanic word for church. Um, I believe God has called this church on a mission to bring beauty and to bring healing to this land. I believe he is calling us to lead men, women, and children into his love and into his lordship. But there are so many there are so many things that weigh so heavily on our heart and mind, isn't there? There's sorrow, there's pain, there's weakness, there's sin, there's death. I mean, we know, we know, because what the Bible says, we know that these things are going to strengthen our faith, that they're going to bear fruit, that, they're, that all things work together for the good, right? We know that. But when you're in the midst of it, doesn't it feel so lonely? Doesn't it kind of consume your mind? Doesn't it feel so like, hopeless? The pain is just overwhelming. We think, God, I know you want me to live for you, and I know you want me to serve you, and I know what you want me to love others in your name, but it's all I can do just to get out of bed in the morning. It feels sometimes like, okay, God, I know you care so much about my tomorrow, but what about today? Do you care at all about today? See the truth that is being stated in this very simple children's story. God is not calling you to live for him and to serve him while he sits back, idly by, arms crossed, calloused heart, uncaring towards the suffering in your life today. In fact, I would even venture to say that he cares more about it than you do. This is just something I'm starting to, to get. I believe that Jesus cared for that sick little boy in John chapter 4 even more than his daddy did. Um, and that's why. That's why Jesus refused just to heal that boy in a temporary way like his dad requested. Jesus wanted to not just heal that boy physically. He wanted to heal the family spiritually. When God calls us to move forward in mission, do not think for a second that he is so singularly focused on the souls of others that he has completely forgotten about your pain and your own needs. God proved how much he cares for us. He proved how much our pain and our sorrow bothers him. Ultimately, in fact, actually, it's Jesus' attitude towards the suffering of this man's family. It's his proof of the way he feels about this man and how much he cares that actually will bring this man into saving faith. Do you remember what happened when the boy was healed? Verse 53, it says, The man and his whole household believe. What led to that belief? What led to that belief? It's the love and the provision of God. That man, that royal official, came home and he saw indeed his boy was alive and his boy was well. He knew that Jesus had loved him. He knew that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He, he knew that Jesus had not blown him off. And so they believed. He had proof of Jesus' love and power. But you and I have a far greater demonstration of God's love, don't we? God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This man was able to enjoy the grace of God and to see his son spared because God did not spare his own son. This man's son was saved because God the Father allowed his son to be forsaken. On that cross, God deliberately lost his son. He deliberately lost his son. Why would he do that? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Place your faith in him. Let's pray.